Hey everyone, thanks for coming out on this icy January night. Um, I was so excited to get here, and then I was like, it's so cold, what's going on? Um, but I was excited because, well, everything that's going on in the country, um, it's nice to be in the home state of our next president. Um, <laughs> although maybe our next president will be Pence, who knows? Um, but yeah, it's real. So when I was coming here, people were like, um, people were like, say hi to Bernie. I was like, I don't think he's here. <laughs> I think he's either in D.C. or Iowa or probably D.C. Uh, but I, 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 where do I even begin? Um, I was here a few years ago as a resident, just like you, and at the time I was trying to finish a manuscript of poetry, which is Mariana's Beauty Salon. I worked on it for 20 years. It took me 20 years to finish that book. Um, most of my books take 10 to 20 years to finish. Um, I'm much older than I, I look. Um, and uh, I'm in my, I'm, 40, I'm gonna be 46 soon. So um, it, I think it's, writing is such a process and things like this coming to the Vermont Studio Center are kind of like little reprieves for us, right? I don't know if you're feeling that, um, but thanks so much for coming out tonight. I'm gonna read a few uh, from Mariana's and then I'm going to read from Corona as well, uh, which is a, a book I was also working on when I was here last. So the first, you know, I don't know about you, but organizing a manuscript of poetry is quite difficult. And when I was here, I think I spent so much time just putting it together and then taking it apart. And, and I went to the library and I ended up just checking out how every different poet um, structured their book. And it was so helpful for me. And I realized that there was no question, but I just had to start the book with this poem, uh, Rapunzel's Mother um, or a Pakistani Woman Newly Arrived in America, uh, because it's when I'm still in her belly. <laughs> and it's a very good beginning spot. Um, and I, I heard that some people read it last night at a writing group, and so I thought I would uh, read it and share the backstory of you. You might wonder, why is it called Rapunzel's Mother? <laughs> I don't know if you, like anyone, figure that one out, but are you familiar with Rapunzel, the story? Uh, does anyone know, you know, she's got the hair, and now people call it Tangled, I guess. They don't call it Rapunzel anymore. But, uh, are you, you know, the reason she's in the tower to begin with is because her mother was pregnant, wanted some vegetables that were in their next-door neighbor, the witch's garden. Um, when her husband went to get them, he was caught and then promised his firstborn child. Like, that's the backstory. And I think of this as an un amazing metaphor for uh, the immigrant experience because people come here for a better life, and yet they lose their children to their country or they feel they lose their children to their country. And um, a lot of my writing is about being, having that kind of divide happen in your family that you don't want to happen. You know, we love each other so much and yet we're growing up so different than the way our parents grew up and there's such a disconnect, you know. So um, that large and tragedy is the one that I, I like to write about. Um, Rapunzel's mother or a Pakistani woman newly arrived in America. And with a cabbage, a box of eggs so clean, she could easily forget the source of their existence. My mother filled her silver cart and moved in line to make her purchase. The cashier turned a sharp glance at the small brown woman with a pierced nose and covered head. She didn't fit into this, an American supermarket. And what, asked the cashier, are you willing to pay for this? She held a head of lettuce in the air. It reflected off her rhinestone glasses and the hairspray in her hair. But this, said my mother, is America. I thought there was no barter here, <laughs> said the cashier. There's give and take all over the world. What made you think it would be different here? She shook her head in her plastic hair. But I have money. My mother tried to act like she didn't care. Her English broke all over her and fell apart in the air. 
But the cashier cackled, no, 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 my dear, what I want is here. And she pointed a nail, silver painted and crooked, at my young mother's stomach, which I had just begun to share. That's the price you'll have to pay, my dear, for this fresh lettuce. Each egg that erupts into a new-blown head shall be the property of this here supermarket country and nation. And don't even think of running, because we've got the goods on you. Along with every other immigrant, we've got your passport, your foreign passport, right here. She made to reach into her too tight jeans, but my mother, she ran out of there. The shopping girl openly laughed behind her, and the lines and lines of customers just stood there with their stupid grins. My mother ran, the door opened by itself. My mother ran, but she still found herself in a foreign land, far away from home. That was that. Um, and so one thing that my parents did to kind of feel at home here was they just watched a ton of Bollywood. I don't know how many of you watch Bollywood or are familiar with Bollywood. I see some smiles. Um, and, uh, and it was like a constant, constant, and I don't know if you know, but Bollywood is kind of like, the one from the 70s and 80s were like soft porn, basically. <laughs> but my mother, one of her jobs was um, that she would make bootleg copies from my uncle's store. And so it was, and, and I don't know if you know VCR culture, but you can't just digitally copy something. You literally had to play the movie from beginning to end over and over again. So that was going on. That was like the backdrop of my whole childhood. Um, <laughs> and so the, the, this poem is called Will Heaven Look Like Zenith Amman, who was an amazing actress of the time. But you're welcome to fill in the Bollywood famous people right now. The, the actors mentioned here are Meeta Bachchan and Zenith Aman. Uh, but you can put in Shahrukh Khan and Padmini or whoever. <laughs> I see you're like a Shahrukh Khan fan. Um, you know, Shahrukh Khan did this amazing interview with David Letterman. If you don't know who Shahrukh Khan is, watch his interview with David Letterman. It is unbelievable. It was such a joy to watch that interview. Um, will heaven look like Zenith Aman? My mother used to tape Indian movies, illegally, all day long. There'd be three or four movies going, two VCRs whirring, getting all technologically horny with the high-pitched songs of the young female stars. The lucky ones who got to dance with Amitabh. Their bodies would be bursting out of their saris, their lips would be all moist and warm, but untouched, and Amitabh would be there all funny, funny, with his eyes, with his long, long body and his eyes brown and warm. My mother used to tape Indian movies illegally all day long. There'd be three or four movies going, two VCRs whirring, their frequencies all turned on by that subtle pre-orgasmic flurrying that filled every lovesick song. And it filled me so that even as a child, loving and kissing were in my dreams. And I could never quite walk from point A to point B, but would instead jump and bounce, humming something about eyes looking like oceans or the sea in a storm. And at night, before going to sleep, I'd think about all the kids in kindergarten with me and imagine all sorts of adventures and all sorts of dances and songs. But my mother, she's different now. She faces Makkah, not Namakalal. And although she's sing still singing verses from the Quran, it's not the same. There isn't any kind of tingling in my feet or my gut. When I go home, I wrap my dupatta around me. My mother hugs me in between prayers. She doesn't get off her janamaz. But I remember her being different. I remember her smiling or angry, but always something, at least something that felt like lightning in a storm. That was her before. Now she's like a volcano rumbling as she sits there reading namaz. And I wonder if when her spirit passes, when her soul starts and leaves her body, and she goes to that place she'd rather be, will Muhammad look like Amitabh, or will heaven look like Zina Taman? Oops, I wasn't supposed to say Muhammad there, but it slipped. <laughs> um, in, the, in the published book, when I, when I came here um, and when I was doing the manuscript, and I highly recommend this if you haven't read yet, um, I shared all the poems I was most afraid of publishing. 
And um, that was so helpful to me in the creation of the manuscript. Um, it's a really, you know, you can find a really great community here. Um, I'm going to read one more about my mom, uh, and then I'll read some love poems, uh, because, you know, what warms us up more in the winter than, than some love? Um, let's see, shall I read this? Well, okay, I will, because, um, so, uh, we, I was having a conversation with some residents today about motherhood, and I'm a mother now, I never thought, thought I would be one, um, and it, it's just uh, interesting to be a mother and an artist, and it's, it's not easy in this country to be that. I'll, I'll tell you, it's, it's very difficult, as some of you who are parents might know um, in the room. And, you know, now I kind of get it, where I'm like, oh, that's why she was crying. You know, you're just like, oh, God, it's not, it's such a, a thankless job sometimes being a mother. Um, and then add to that the immigrant experience, add to that poverty, add to that, like, urban decay, and it just becomes, like, you know, a lot. Um, and I just have one kid. My mother had six children, you know. Um, and so this poem is called Ami's Cassettes. Ami is what we call our, our moms, and uh, in, at least in Urdu. And uh, so because she had to give these tapes to my uncle so he could sell them, uh, she didn't have the movies anymore, but she loved the music so much that she would put like a big boom box next to the TV and then tape the songs that she liked so she could keep them. So it was like this whole like South Asian copyright free zone going on for her. And, and then I'm like, where did I get my documentation desire from? And it, you know, it's clearly from her. Um, but what happens with, again, techno from the 80s, uh, it also caught all the background noise. So, I, uh, so this poem is about that, um, on these cassettes. The other day, I found my mother's cassettes from the 80s. They were full of love songs from Indian movies. Ami used to tape them from the TV while she cleaned. And I thought back to the orange carpets, the sofas with their plastic, the way everything was dusted and perfect. I tried to fill the memory with her music, to come up with something peaceful, something splendid. But the tapes, they just didn't play that way. You see, they caught all the background noise, the sound of babies crying, children fighting, fire engines going, and the sound of a child being hit. The children wouldn't stop making noise until my mother's own voice would break. Then there would be nothing but the sound of her crying and the sound of music in a language my mother was dying to hear. And I thought back to the orange carpets and the way I would press my face against them and against the plastic sofas until the perspiration would make it stick and listen to the sound of her crying and all the love songs of longing. They promised everything missing in our house with its orange carpets, everything missing in the plastic, everything she ever recorded. Thank you. Um, Thanks for listening. So I'm going to do some love poems. Um, and so, you know, one of the reasons my mother became more um, religious um, as I got older was, uh, well, because she got older, and also because I was such a rebellious child. I, I ran away from home. Um, I am a writer. I'm queer. I'm, you know, then I... Mar you know, married outside the religion. I just, you know, so many things. And so, uh, you know, she, I, I feel like I helped develop her faith, honestly. <laughs> um, I helped her get closer to God. Um, and, uh, you know, but it's, it's fascinating. You know, love is hard, you know. Love is really hard. And I think um, I didn't want to be trapped. And I didn't, you know, I, and I, you know, I was in this queer culture in New York City in which, you know, everyone is polyamorous and everyone is fluid. And, you know, we didn't have as much guidance in the 80s and 90s. You know, all we had was the ethical slut. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. But, you know, now I feel like there's all these, like, blogs and handbooks and people are so much smarter about polyamory now. But um, back then, it was complicated. And, and I was in this long-term relationship with someone. And finally, we were like, this is just not, it was open and 
finally like we we're like this cannot work anymore and we we broke up but we wanted to be friends so we were like one day you know he was like let's go to the museum of natural history and i was like okay that's a good idea there's security there and um it'll be fine um and at the time i was reading a lot of rumi um and there's this amazing line uh, that's, love is a tyrannous prince. And uh, so it's, that's the epigraph of this poem. At the Museum of Natural History. As we both look up at the Tyrannosaurus Rex, its bones painted black, its danger extinct, I can hear the sounds of children echo throughout the museum. And we are not afraid this way, to stand a few inches away from each other. We're not afraid because it's over. The Tyrannosaurus Rex doesn't scare us, and we don't scare each other. It's over. The bones are beginning to fade and bleach in our failure. But if someone finds our bones one day and decides to lay them right next to each other, will they lay them in their proper ways? Will they mix up my hip with yours? Will they place the fingers of my hands on someone else's palms? Will they ever know this flesh answered the other, that my fingers traveled all over the empty space around your bones? Thanks. And I'll read one more poem, and then I'll just do a little prose, and then we'll do a Q&A. And, and then tomorrow we'll have a workshop, which will be exciting. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, and it'll be creative, and you'll get to write. You'll get to write, too. Uh, so I, it's so bizarre. I don't know if any of you can relate to this, but you know, it's, it's like relationship, one month, one month, one month, and suddenly like 11 years. You know, I'm, I've, I've met someone, and I can't believe it's been 11 years. And, we have a kid and I don't understand it. And a lot of times people look at our relationship and they're like, oh, your relationship, like you're Jewish, Muslim, you're like a marker of peace. And we're like, we don't really think of it that way. We kind of think of it as we're two New York City street rats who found each other <laughs> and get each other and know how to live together and raise a kid together. Um, and when we first met, we met up in the Catskill Mountains. We were both at a party there, both visiting from New York City. And um, he was a b-boy, he was a break dancer when he was young and a, and a graffiti artist. And he was part of that whole, if you saw Style Wars, like he was that, he was like, it was like his friends in that movie that are doing graffiti in the subways, like, you know, in the middle of the night. And, um, and so we're in the Catskills and uh, this happens. Um, it's called b-boy. Uh, I say, I always want you to be that man standing on your head, trying to impress me with your b-boy antics an era I lived through but was never truly allowed to experience. We might as well be in the schoolyard and the trees and the homes around us could just fall off, leave behind pavement, fences, and screams of kids screaming, and then you among the boys, me among the girls, you not looking my way, but with all my body I know your awareness is focused on me. And you know, even though I look away, stand quiet, there is already a fluttering underneath my skirt. My hair rises up just a little in the wind, as you throw your body down, raise yourself up, your body strong, tense. Everyone is smiling, and I am smiling with everyone else. But I know, and you know, that head spin is for me. Um, which is, it was not the kind of party where you would just suddenly start to break dance, which is what was so funny about it. So I was like, oh, okay, that is why, okay. Um, so I'm gonna read a little bit from the book Corona, um, just a short opening um, from it. And uh, so I, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Queens and New York City, uh, but Corona is a small neighborhood um, in New York City. I grew up there from, uh, from when I was like one to 16. I left when I was 16, but it's still like in my bones and I've never really, you know, I still live partially in New York City. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it was important to me to write a book about Corona because I feel that 
most people who pass through the neighborhood just see like a disgusting, dirty, roach infested, <laughs> um, you know, place. But for those of us who grow up there, it's home and there's so much beauty in um, the community that we had there and uh, the way that us neighborhood kids were with each other. And um, it, it was very special. So this whole book, um, but it was also very dark and violent. So um, the stories in the book are both the celebration, but they don't flinch away from how dark and violent it, it could be. Um, all right, Corona. And I'm not talking about the beer. <laughs> I'm talking about a little village perched under the number seven train in Queens between Junction Boulevard and 111th Street. I'm talking about the Lemon Ice King, Spaghetti Park, and PS19. The Corona F. Scott Fitzgerald called the Valley of Ashes as the Great Gatsby drove past it on his night of carousal, but when me and my own know his home. And we didn't know about any Valley of Ashes, because by then it had been topped off by our houses. You know, the kind made from brick, this tan color no self-respecting brick would be at all. That's Corona. And you know the song by Paul Simon, the one where he says, I'm on my way, I don't know where I'm going. I'm on my way, I'm taking my time, and I don't know where. Goodbye to Rosie, Queen of Corona. See you, me, and Julio down by the schoolyard. Well, I used to always tell people it was Corona he was singing about, but I didn't really know if it was true, because why would Paul Simon be singing about Corona? I mean, I didn't see many white people there unless they were policemen or firemen, and I didn't think Paul Simon had ever been one of those. But then I saw these old pictures of Simon and Garfunkel, and there they were, standing in front of one of those tan brick homes. I couldn't believe it. All this time I was trying to have fake Corona Pride, that was real Corona Pride. The lie I thought was a lie was actually true. I had a Julio too. We didn't hang out down by the schoolyard like Paul Simon must have with his Julio. We didn't really hang out anywhere at all, but I loved him the way you only could when you're a child. Julio had beauty marks all over, as if it wasn't obvious to everyone how he looked. He carried his body like fire matchstick rope. All the girls in school showed off for Julio, cursing and fighting. In Corona, girls learned early to flash skin, flirt, chew gum, and play games to bring the boys down to their knees, even though it usually ended up the other way around. But I was not one of them. My mother didn't even let me wear skirts, especially the short kind the other girls wore with their hairless legs and their fearless way of flicking their hips. I watched them flirt with Julio, my back against the brick wall. Julio was my next door neighbor and in my same fourth grade class in school. We walked the same way home, not together of course. He walked ahead of me with his friends who'd be whooping and laughing, pulling roses out whenever we went past this house that had so many roses they grew up and over through the fence like they were some kind of convicts trying to scale the walls. The Korean grandmother who lived there always stood in the yard as soon as the school bell rang and waved her stick and screamed at them so they wouldn't pull out every last one. But Julio always managed to steal a rose. He was quick and thin. All the other boys rallied around him. He leapt to the top of the fence, grabbed a rose, then fell back on the pack of boys, pushing one of them nearly into the street, partly from the impact and partly for the joy of it. He'd shake the hair out of his eyes and laugh. Then one day, the Korean grandmother got smart. She wasn't waiting inside, from inside the fence, yelling like she usually was. She hid behind a car across the street. And when Julio and his friends came around, she was right behind them. She grabbed Julio by one of his skinny arms and pulled him into the garden. Bad boy, she shook him. Tell me where you live. Julio's friends stopped. Their hands were still pushed through the gaps in the fence. This was new. They didn't know whether to run away or run in. They stood like statues waiting for someone to do or say something to make things normal. Julio was the one who did. He pulled back with all his thin weight and said to her, I don't need to tell you where I live, you bleep. I gasped. Even Julio looked shocked at himself. 
The slurs we threw at the playground were so strange when thrown at an adult. The grandmother stopped shaking him. Her mouth opened, but what she wanted to say, she couldn't. Julio and my eyes met, and I felt the thread of our shame pulse through me, a burning flame. Just then, Julio picked, Julio, just then, one of Julio's friends picked up a beer can from the street and threw it at her. It missed, but the next thing I knew, there was a howl and a rush. All the boys started picking up litter and glass bottles that had been left on the street and throwing them. The grandmother's fingers lost their grip, and when she ran into the house, the boys ran into the garden and started pulling roses off the branches. All of them, the tea lemon, the hot pink, the deep red, the little ones with flecks of gold in their skin. The thorns tore through their fingers, but they didn't let it stop them. It was their first time in the garden, and now it was theirs. By this time, all the kids who walked home that way, and even some who didn't, had stopped to see what was happening. Unable to pull away, I stood with my face pressed against the chain links. Then I saw Julio. His arms were full of tattered roses. He looked like a crown prince as he walked out of the garden and started throwing flowers at the children who were too scared to run in. When he saw me, he stopped. For a second, I could see he couldn't trust me not to tell. Then he smiled, the first time he had ever really smiled at me. He picked out a rose. It was hot, pink, stiff, just beginning to open. Here, he said, and threw the rose at my feet. It trembled on the sidewalk, an innocent gasping for breath. I turned away and saw the grandmother looking at us through her window. Her face was half hidden by the curtains. The other half was a mask. Her eyes were far away as if we reminded her of a time and place when she'd lost everything. We were no longer children to her. I made my hands into fists, tucked my head down and hurried home. I could feel Julio's eyes burning into me. I knew I shouldn't, but I looked back. So, thank you. Um, I think that's, that's about half an hour right there. <laughs> What's happening? Um, uh, well, I, I do want to have time for Q&A, but maybe, um, I won't start this new story, but um, Corona's here. Uh, you're welcome to read it. That's the opening of the book. You'll see that there's some changes. Um, uh, from the original because I'm getting a chance to redo that book. It's being put out as a young adult novel with some of the young adult stories in Corona and then um, new stories. And it's an amazing chance to revise because I feel like for all of us who print and document, then we're like, oh God, I can't believe I wrote that and now it's published and people are going to think I'm a horrible pers person. But, you know, so I, it's great that I'm having a chance to revise these stories from Corona again in, in the new YA novel. Um, I guess I'll just read one more, and I'll, I'll dedicate this to my daughter. Um, and like I said, I, I never was the kind of person who thought I'd be a mom or even wanted to be a mom. I didn't think it was necessary. Um, and then, and then I had all kinds of you know surgeries. I had to have ovaries removed, and, th and I, so I didn't even think I could become a mom. Um, so she's a miracle. Um, and there was a time when I was very young where I had to have an ovary removed, and then I was so upset about it that I. I was like on the subway and I left my book bag on the subway <laughs> and um, at the time I was very transient and I carried everything I owned in my book bag pretty much and uh, you know for those of you who are writers and poets it's like sometimes those accidents of fate are what lead to the creative kind of um, creativity so uh, this one's called ovary I left my ovary on the subway last night stepped out felt light heard the doors close behind me and then realized I'd left my ovary behind if there was an honest person left in New York, maybe they'd return it. But you can get $2,000 for an egg, at least that's what the village voice says. And with enough eggs in there to last me a lifetime, whoever found it is going to be rich. I reported my ovary lost the next day. The woman who answered the phone said, well, we've got lots of hearts, livers, kidneys, and brains, but no ovary. <laughs> no ovary, I said, please, would you look again? 
She sighed, but then being a woman, I guess she did understand. What did they look like? Like walnuts, kind of shriveled and red? <laughs> Contents? All my unborn children? My mother's smile and my father's laugh? My sister's tongue and my crooked teeth? But also the potential for genius. There was a pause on the other end, and then she said, I'll be right back. But when she returned, she said, there was nothing like my ovary there, but I should call again. I called the next morning. You? Well, today I have one limb and one liver in pretty bad condition. Anything else? Um, a human head. Is it Timothy Leary's? Yes, he's dead. But I've got a long braid of hair, a couple of kneecaps, a stomach that's full but quickly becoming empty, but no ovary, no ovary, she said. If there was an honest person left in New York, maybe they'd return it. But you can get $2,000 for an egg. At least that's what the village voice says. But still, I call every morning, and it's always the same woman. She tells me about all the pieces of people she finds missing, and I tell her about all the pieces of myself I've lost and not found yet. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for, li thanks for listening. Um,